Good morning. Uh, my name is Ben Robertson, for those of you who I do not know, and I am the campus minister with Reform University Fellowship over at William & Mary. I'm going to take a second to give a shameless plug. Any of you who are here, college students for summer school, um, or here doing research, or here of college age, home uh, from college, uh, we're having a Bible study every Tuesday night on the campus of William & Mary just outside of the Jamestown dorm. If those of you who go there, there are the, the green rocking chairs and stuff right by where everybody always plays Ultimate Frisbee. Um, but 7 o'clock Tuesday night, we're looking at the I Am statements of Jesus from the Gospel of John. We'd love for you to come. Um, you can, if you forget all those details, ask me uh, afterwards. Uh, but we're going to continue our series in the Psalms. We're going to be looking at Psalm 8 this morning. Psalm 8, a Psalm of David. Um, and one of my personal favorites. Um, and we just read it a minute ago as our call to worship, but we're, let's read it again. Uh, so Psalm 8, and if you have a pew Bible, it's um, page 450. Psalm 8. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babes and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place. What is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands and you have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Let's pray. Lord, you are in fact majestic. And we need to praise you like we should. Help us to join in with your word this psalm that praises you so well and help us to see a glimpse of your glory, a glimpse of your grace, and a glimpse of your majesty so that we can join with it with all of our hearts. We ask this in your name. Amen. I want to tell you about a man named Ed Kidder. Ed Kidder was a great man. He is a great man. He's still alive. Uh, as anyone who knows me well will, I'm sure, easily imagine, when I was in middle school and junior high, I excelled at being obnoxious. I was, I was good at it. I got awards. Um, I was mentioned on television a few times. Um, but one of the people who loved me anyway uh, was Ed Kidder. He was my junior high Sunday school teacher uh, and was involved in the, in the youth ministry at our, at our small church. And he uh, drove a truck. He, drove a, he continues to this day to work for FedEx. The tornadoes that came through Tuscaloosa, Alabama, he missed, they missed him by you know, just this much. Uh, he tried to stop at a building for shelter that was destroyed. Uh, minutes later, and they, they sent him on. They said, this building won't stand. I'm very glad he's still with us. And I had a chance to see him a few weeks ago. Um, but he, he bore with me and taught me week after week and uh, continues to love me now. Uh, not only that, uh, was he involved in uh, our church, but he was an artist. He would make these wood prints and sell them at the local art fairs whenever these things came through town. Uh, he would make these tremendous carvings and prints, and sometimes they would go in our church bulletin. Um, he would sing. 
Uh, like we had the special music a moment ago. He, he would do that for our church about once a month. And it was, um, I've had other people tell me, this isn't just like the kid who, who looks up to his teacher. He, he was almost like our personal James Taylor uh, at our church. He was just, he was phenomenal. He was great. Um, and also, uh, he had a child around the time that I was in middle school, too. He has two sons. But at that time, his firstborn, Christopher. Uh, and I got to see him uh, as, as Christopher grew. And I can remember when, when he was little, two, three years old, and seeing Ed stoop down and speak to him and connect with him and talk to him and love his son um, and taught me a lot in modeling. I was the youngest child, so I didn't get to see my own parents do that with little ones, uh, but to watch that. And it taught me a lot about being a father. Uh, Ed, Ed Kidder is, is a great man. Now, if we were to stop right now and, I, and we were to ask each other, what did Ben just talk about? Uh, you might say, well, he talked about being a good father and what that looks like with two-year-olds, and he might talk about how he likes James Taylor and good music, and uh, he might talk about the importance of loving middle schoolers in the church, and those would all sort of be true, but really what I was trying to tell you is that Ed is great, Right? Now, very often, Psalm 8 is pointed to as this psalm that's about the, the dignity of mankind, the beauty of humanity, and it is. But it's not the main point of the psalm. In fact, that serves to point to something else. Uh, the point of the psalm is, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. That's why it begins and ends with that statement. And everything else in the middle serves to demonstrate what's on the outside. It's called an inclusio. It's this parentheses around everything that's said in the middle. This is what it's about. Our Lord is majestic, powerful, full of authority, kingly, and just more generally, glorious, full of splendor. That's what it means to be majestic in this sense. So how is God majestic? We know how Ed is great, but how is God majestic? Uh, first, he's majestic in the creation. Look at verse 1. How majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Verse 3, and we'll come back to verse 2 later, I promise. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers. Don't you love that phrase? The work of your fingers. The moon and the stars which you have set in place. King David is saying, if you question God's majesty, step out on a clear night and look up. David was fortunate to live before light pollution and other pollution <laughs> blocked our view. But if you've been out in the country, you know exactly what he's talking about. Um, listen to some of these stats, these statistics about the stars that David points us to, um, to get a sense of just the size of our universe. If you were to stand on a football field, these are rough estimates, right? If you were to stand on, on a football field behind the goalpost and hold a volleyball, and you sent a friend all the way across to the other end of the football field under the goalpost, and he held up a purple grape, you know, the round ones, average size. The volleyball is like the sun, and the grape is us, Earth. Uh, Jupiter's about the size of a grapefruit. Give us a sense of just how small our planet is. Uh, but beyond that, if you back up, that's our solar system, right? If you back up into the galaxy, uh, the Milky Way in which we live. Um, I haven't actually gotten a telescope and done the equations on this, so I'm trusting other people who studied these things. The, they say the Milky Way is this 
massive spiral of solar systems that out in space, we're going through this massive rotation of this spiral of stars. Um, according to their calculations, again, rough estimate, it would take one million years to rotate one time completely around in the Milky Way. It's 104,000 light years to cross the Milky Way. Again, a, a light year is, not, is a, a measurement of speed, right? If you're traveling at the speed of light, it's saying it would take you 104,000 years to cross the Milky Way at the speed of light. There are a hundred billion stars in our Milky Way. hundred, that's billion with a B in the Milky Way. And you know, the sun is a star, right? That volleyball and we're the great. According to these stats, there are thousands, I'm sorry, hundreds of billions of galaxies, we think, in the universe. Galaxies, those not solar systems, galaxies. Our galaxy takes 104,000 years to cross at the speed of light. We'll zoom back in. We, we get the volleyball, run across the football field, completely out of breath, look at the grape. And now there's about a, a sunflower seed size speck on that grape, and that's called America. And we zoom in on that. Zoom. And uh, it's, you see the United States, and then there's a Lego block on there, and that's called Virginia. We zoom in on Virginia. And you see a dot that's called Williamsburg. And you zoom in, you see that sort of V shape that leads into the, that's how I can find it on the map. Where's the V of the college and the Colonial Williamsburg coming together? And we move the map over. And even if you just took an aerial shot just of the property that we are on right now with the parking lot and the church, and you walk out and stand in the parking lot, on a big photo, you'd be about that big. See, David looks up at the stars, and he doesn't know all these stats, but he has this sense of there's something really big up there, something really big and beautiful, and I'm really small. What is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? He looks up at this and says, why would you care? Why do you not just acknowledge that we exist or take notice of us, but you even care? Um, Dave Matthews, if you know who he is, uh, makes a similar observation um, in his song, One Sweet World. Very similar, but, but very different too. Listen to these lyrics. He says this. Nine planets round the sun, only one does the sun embrace. And upon this watered one, so much we take for granted. So let us sleep outside tonight and lay down in our mother's arms, for here we can rest safely. But if green should slip into gray, would our hearts still bloody be? And if mountains crumbled away and the rivers dried up, would it stop our stepping feet? Vacation is yes, it would. Take all that we can get. When it's done, nobody left to bury here. 
nobody left to dig the holes. And here we can rest safely. One sweet world around a star is spinning. One sweet world. And in her breath, I'm swimming. And here, I will rest in peace. Now, he's saying something very similar. He's saying he's looking at how fortunate we are to live where we do in the midst of everything around us in the solar system. He limits it to that. But what is he saying? He's saying this is all there is. As he says in another song, it all comes down to nothing. I haven't kept up with his lyrics. This one's about 15, 20 years old, which is hard for me to believe. But uh, I don't know if he's changed his worldview at all since then. But what is he saying in this song? He's saying enjoy it. Appreciate it. Don't take it for granted. But this is all there is. So smoke them if you got them. Because you're going to rest in peace here, and that's it. Um, it's a pretty appealing worldview if this is all there is. I think it's about the best conclusion you could come to if you decided that the universe is it, and that's it. Um, and David is looking at the stars and saying something similar. Yes, I'm small, but this isn't all there is. In fact, when he looks at humanity, he doesn't just say, well, live it up while you can, or we don't really matter. But he sees another reason, an even better reason, to praise God. To see the majesty of God. See, God is majestic in his creation, but he also goes on to say that God is majestic in mankind, in humanity, in us. God is majestic in mankind. Look at verse 5. You have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings. Translators differ over whether or not that means angels or God himself. And you've crowned him with glory and honor. I think Dave's got the best option if we're all that there is, but, but if there is a God who is there and is not silent and has created us in this unique way, there's something so much more, a reason to praise God himself. And if we were to conclude that we are all that there is, humanity through history has tended to fall off on one side or the other of this problem. If we are all that there is in creation, in the universe, then we can either deify humanity on the one end, or dehumanize humanity on the other. If we deify ourselves, we say we're above everything, we're the best and the brightest that we know of in our world, and therefore we can do whatever we want with whatever we want, to whomever we want. Or on the other end, we can dehumanize people and decide that the value of a human being is not intrinsic to who they are. They're part of the dust that we're all part of. That It's all going to come down to nothing anyway. And if I'm stronger than you, I can take what's yours and make it mine. Some people are more valuable than others based on what they do or don't do, based on how much money they're costing society to keep them alive. And I'm not just talking about ideas. I'm talking about real things. If you've studied history at all, these things happen. And sometimes they go together, where some of us are gods and some of us are animals. Too bad if you're the animal. Too bad if you're slow. Too bad if you're weak. But here David says no. God is not silent. He is there. He has created us and he has created us in his image. This passage is an echo of Genesis 1. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? And yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor, with dignity. And God's glory is on display through it. Uh, when I was in seminary, uh, 
Dawn and I would often ride together. She worked a couple of miles from the seminary, and she would drop me off in the morning at the library, and I would get there early because she had to be at work, and I'd go inside and study my flashcards and get ready for Hebrew and Greek. And uh, there's a man that works at the seminary um, that I've gotten to know over the years. His name is Wayne Sparkman, and he's a, he's a historian. He gathers denominational historical facts and, and helps uh, keep historical documents so that we can have a record of, of our church. Um, and uh, he is to the Presbyterian Church in America as Lee Segeser was to NASA. Hey, those of you who know Lee, that's, um, that's, that was his job. Well, he had a son named Jeremy, and Jeremy was in his 20s. And Jeremy has never spoken a word, and short of a complete miracle, he never will. He has some sort of neurological disorder that, to this point, to, to my knowledge, has never actually been accurately diagnosed or named. Um, but I can remember uh, sometimes Jeremy would come to work with Wayne, and uh, he, he would sit in a wheelchair by his dad's desk. Um, sometimes I would walk in to see Wayne, and uh, he'd be curled up in a blanket on the floor taking a nap. Um, Wayne said, sometimes he'll smile. You can tell that some foods he likes more than others, some medications he doesn't like the taste of, and things like that. But I remember this one day. It was a cold fall, late fall morning. We pulled up into the drive, and there was Wayne with Jeremy getting out. It was this drizzly, wet, rainy day. And I remember, I don't know, to this day I can't figure out exactly why, except I think it just must have been quicker that day, or maybe the wheelchair was broken. But I saw Wayne, a grown man, pick up his grown son, lift him over his shoulder like a giant baby, and scurry inside. I think just to get his son out of the rain a moment quicker rather than stopping and setting up the wheelchair and putting him in the wheelchair and getting things turned around, he just grabbed him and ran inside. And we stopped and we stared. Uh, not staring in a gawking sense, but in that moment, I had met Jeremy multiple times, but I had never seen his glory. I had never understood that he was crowned with splendor, that the majesty of God was on display in him in the way that his father recognized that he was carrying precious goods into the building to get him out of the cold. The glory of God, his majesty. Let me ask you a question. Do you see that in people? Oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Look at this person sitting next to me. What about someone that you're mad at? having a hard time forgiving, a broken relationship. What if you could see what David is telling us to see in them, the glory of God on display? How would that help you love them if you could imagine? Of course, they're sinful and you're sinful and there's things getting in the way and we'll get to that in a second. But they're in the image of God and his majesty is radiating out of them. What if you could see it and believe that that's who God has made them to be. How would that help you forgive them or love them or seek reconciliation with them? Do you see it in others? And sometimes this one is harder. Do you see it in yourself? Do you believe that this psalm is talking about you? This idea of the image of God. All of mankind is made in his image. Everyone, every one of us are crowned with glory and honor. But not only that, you see, we're made in God's image and yet we're all unique. 
Every single person is different. I don't think I need to persuade you of that because we're Americans, we know this. We're the individuals of the world, right? But it's true, every, every individual is unique and every individual is a reflection of God's glory. Put those two things together. Every single person is a unique reflection of God's glory and what that means is no one in the history of the world past and no one in the history of the world future is gonna reflect God in the exact same way that you do. Think about that. No one can reflect God in the exact same way that you do. Which means, when you try to be someone you're not, when you posture yourself, when you put up the, what does this person want me to be, and how can I project myself in such a way that they will like that person, and then I can pretend to be that person, and then they will accept me and they'll like me. Not just the idea of covering up your sin and things like that, of course, we, we talk about that a lot. But in the sense of recognizing when I, when I cover myself up, when I pretend to be someone I'm not, when I'm what J.D. Salinger's Holden Caulfield called a phony. Remember that kid? He hated phonies. Catcher in the rye. I'm actually depriving them of a glimpse of God's glory that no other person in history could exactly show. Are you missing that in each other? Or are you missing it in yourself? It's as if when you try to be someone you're not, it's as if we're looking at the stars and you're putting your hand over our eyes. Like that new iPad commercial. I don't know if you've seen it. Where apparently there's an app that tells you where the constellations are. And that's kind of neat, I guess, if you want to identify them. But I hate the commercial because then there's this moment. All these cool things the new iPad can do. And there's a shot of someone laying under the stars looking at their iPad. And I'm thinking, no, no. That's what we're doing to each other. Nope. Don't see it. See the lion that I want you to see. You're robbing other people of the opportunity to see God in a way that they otherwise could not when you try to be someone who you aren't. Hmm. Now, okay, but what is the image of God for? I mean, I think if we just stopped there, that would be enough. That would be great, right? If we could really do that, if we could really see the glory, we could just sit around looking at each other and say, wow, look at this guy. Look at how he's putting God's majesty on display. And look at me and look at him. And isn't God great? And we're just looking at each other and shouting praise. <laughs> but of course there's more, right? What is, the image of, what is the image of God for? I mean, the image of God is something that we are to be. It's something that we are created to be. But it's also something that we've been created to do. Something that we've been created to do because God is majestic yes in his creation and yes in mankind but he's also majestic in his kingdom our Lord is majestic in his kingdom verses 6 through 8 you have given him dominion that's kingdom language over the works of your hands you have put all things under his feet the idea of a king and the footstool his enemies under his feet, conquering, ruling. You've put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. Again, this is an echo of the original mandate in Genesis 1, to be fruitful and multiply, to fill the earth and subdue it, to take dominion over all the earth that God gave to Adam and Eve, and thus to all of us, to rule now, here's this idea. The word image of God isn't used in this passage, I know, but it's a very clear echo of Genesis 1 that says we are all made in his image. Moses, who wrote Genesis, um, when, when he is originally writing to his audience, they are the Israelites who just 
been broken free from Egypt by the hand of the Lord. In Egypt, the Pharaoh was called the image of God. And the job of the image of God was to discern the will of the gods in heaven and see to it that that will was carried out on earth. I'm going to say that again. The, the job of the image of God was to discern the will of the god or gods and see to it that that will was carried out on earth as it is in heaven. Does that sound familiar? And Moses is saying, no, 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 not Pharaoh. Well, yes, Pharaoh. But not as much as he thinks he is. It's not just Pharaoh, it's all of us. We are in God's image. It's our job to be in connection with God and to make this world reflect His image together. To make this world the way that it's supposed to be. To cultivate. To make art and music. To make things beautiful. To make people sing. To create culture. To work. To tend the garden and expand the Garden of Eden across the globe. That was the original call. But there's obviously a problem with that, isn't there, at this point? We're supposed to make the world the way that it's supposed to be. We're supposed to be reflecting God's image and creating peace and harmony in all creation. But the problem is that we've made a mess, have we not? Let's, think of, let's just take government. We'll take one example. I, you know, if sin had never entered the world, we would still need to organize things. We would still need somebody to say what time dinner is and coordinate life and, and, and build roads and do things. We would still have government. We would still have rule. We would still have order. But this government that's supposed to put order into society and make things the way that they are supposed to be to organize human beings. If you, again, I'm not just talking about the United States of America. I'm talking about the world history Governments have slaughtered people by the millions. Millions. We've made a mess. We've committed atrocities. There's government, there's pollution, not taking care of the creation as we ought to. Oppression of the poor, tyranny. Rivalries, abuse. And it's not just in these massive things. It's not just in these big things. But you and I can't even get along with our best friend. I can't. So what do we do? I think this is why that Ephesians 1, 1 Corinthians 15, and, and Hebrews 6 all quote Psalm 8 in reference to Christ. Now it is a psalm about all of humanity, and that is true, but they are saying Christ is the one. Hebrews 2 quotes it at length saying that Jesus is the one who's crowned with glory and honor. Jesus is the one under whom God has placed everything as his footstool. He's placed all things under his feet. And how does he say that that happens through Jesus? Jesus, the one who embodies all that humanity should have been, but wasn't. Jesus is crowned with glory and honor. He, he puts everything under his feet. Hebrews says, through his suffering unto death. Through his suffering unto death, Jesus becomes and fulfills all that we should have been, but are not. Through his suffering. That is how the kingdom comes. God becomes man. Fulfills all that this psalm is supposed to point to. And builds his kingdom. But why through suffering? Why the cross? 
Why in this way? I promised you earlier we'd come back to verse 2. So let's do it now. This is how the kingdom grows. Out of the mouth of babes and infants, or babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. This is this idea of out of the mouths of babies, you have established strength. Or literally have established a fortress, have built a strong fort. It's battle language to still the enemy and the avenger. It's the language of warfare, of kingdom building. And he's saying, out of the mouth of babies, you build a fortress. I'll give you a sense of what he means here. Um, I, Dawn and I are going to get to go on vacation in a couple of weeks, and my brother, who is uh, now a missionary in Mexico, he and his family have decided to come too. And they're going to join our, uh, our family, and we're going to spend some time together. And I'm excited about that. Uh, because I love my brother and, and I love his family, and uh, we were in seminary at the same time. Uh, so we, he's five years older than me, but we, we got to s- go through seminary together. Um, some people call it cemetery together. Um, it wasn't that. I loved it. But um, we spent a lot of time with, with him, and, and they have three children. And his oldest son, Joseph, uh, around the time that this happened, he was about six years old. Uh, and they lived in an apartment on the campus of Covenant Seminary in St. Louis. And uh, behind their apartment they had discovered this black snake. There had been several spottings of the black snake in the backyard. And Joseph is this really creative kid, uh, and he likes to imagine and create, and he, he drew out plans for catching this black snake. We can call it Operation Black Snake. And uh, he had plans A through, I believe, F, of different plans with maps and charts and instructions that he had written out, age six. Um, and basically, I don't remember every plan, but um, essentially every, every plan included uh, these ingredients. One, he had a plastic tube that some little plastic toy snakes had come in. He's like, snakes came in this tube. A snake will go in this tube. So he lays out the plastic tube. Um, and then the, the second part was that he would place an animal cracker in the end of the tube. I think you see where this is going. And uh, of course, as all creatures are the snake would be irresistibly drawn to the animal cracker, uh, go into the tube, and then he and Mary Beth, his younger sister, would leap out from behind the bushes or a tree, depending on the plan, and, and catch the snake in the tube. And we would, Operation Black Snake would be completed. Now, here's the thing. That's brilliant for a six-year-old. This is so neat. It's cool. Loved it. Uh, what this is saying, out of the mouth of babies, you've established a fortress. It's, it would be like a few weeks back, you know, uh, those Navy SEALs, you know, being interviewed, the people in charge of the plan, like, you know, we didn't know how to get bin Laden, um, but then we came across these papers, and uh, we consulted Joseph Robertson about uh, Operation Black Snake. We went with D, rather than A through C, had a few problems, but we're good, they helped. Um, so basically, we, we built a plastic tube, <laughs> placed some animal crackers in the end, and uh, after consulting Joseph, we, we added a, a glass of apple juice, and of course, out he came, we got him, bagged him up, done. Um, that's what he's saying God does. Out of the mouth of babies, you still the enemy in the avenger. Our God beats the foe with animal crackers and apple juice. With the call of a baby. You've seen Lord of the Rings or 300 or Braveheart, these pictures of massive armies running over a hill. And the idea is that you hold up a little baby and he coos a little praise to God and they fall on their backs to still the enemy 
and the avenger, that the kingdom grows by God using the weak things of the world to put to shame the strong. The kingdom grows by God himself being crucified and killed at the hands of lawless men because that puts God's glory on display because he is majestic in his kingdom. And maybe it's just that we're all missing the Barretts right now, but I'll, uh, I'll close with an illustration from Lord of the Rings. <laughs> Actually, uh, our previous pastor, if you're a visitor, he liked to use Lord of the Rings illustrations. This one is actually um, from The Hobbit, which will soon be a movie, two movies, uh, so people will know it if, even if they haven't read it. But this is the closing para paragraph of The Hobbit. And Bilbo Baggins, the little hobbits are these little furry creatures, if you don't know what they are. He's gone on this great adventure, and he's sitting down with his friend Gandalf, the great wizard. And they've, the, the dragon has been slain, and all these amazing things have happened. And uh, Bilbo is marveling over the prophecies of old that had said this would happen. So he says this. So the old stories have proved true after a fashion? Of course, said Gandalf. And why should they not prove true? Surely you do not disbelieve the prophecies because you had a hand in bringing them about. You don't really suppose, do you, that all of your adventures were managed by mere luck, just for your sole benefit? You are a very fine person, Mr. Baggins, and I am very fond of you, but you are only quite a little fellow in a wide world after all. Thank goodness, said Bilbo. And he handed him the tobacco jar. End of book. Like, I think there's a reason why we love those stories. I think there's a reason because we recognize that there's this big picture, this big adventure, this grand story taking place and that we are all just little players in it. And yet not nothing. Not insignificant, not just a little speck on a grape, but that there is dignity, that it matters, and that there is this kingdom being built of which we are small players but vital in the plan of God because he has ordained it in his upside-down kingdom that a grand story is taking place and we're part of it. I need to see that. I need to see it in the creation. I need to see it in you. I need to see it in the building of the kingdom so that I can join with David and say, Oh, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You pray with me. Lord Jesus, you are majestic and you are the king. Hebrews remind us that we do not yet see everything under your feet, but that kingdom is growing and it is building bit by bit. Would you please let us be a little bitty part of it? Help us to love our neighbors. Help us to seek first the kingdom. And help us to see your glory in it minute by minute. Help us to do that even today. We need your help, so I ask it in your name, Jesus. Amen.